Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Well, thank you both so much for joining us here at Hope and Heresy. We are thrilled to have Meg Riley and Charles Dumond with us, the co-moderators of the Unitarian Universalist Association and the first luminaries that we are interviewing. We are absolutely excited to be in this conversation with you. Thank you both so much. I wonder if we could ask you each to just introduce yourselves. I'm Meg Riley, she, her pronouns. I'm on Lakota land here in Minnesota, Minneapolis, where it is 30 below wind chill this morning. <laughs> and um, I grew up in West Virginia. I've been Unitarian Universalist all my life. I spent most of my time in interfaith settings doing work that many people share about our, our values, um, you know, trying to build the alternative to the religious right in a whole lot of different ways over years. And now find myself in a key leadership role in Unitarian Universalism. And I'm Charles Dumond. Uh, I live here in San Mateo, California, on the land of the Ramatushaloni people. I use he, him pronouns. Um, and I have uh, a very <laughs> varied and complicated path to where I am today. I, I, I'm a layperson. I don't have any association with seminaries, although I did serve on the Star King board for a while. Um, and I came to Unitarian Universalism later in life when my children were born. I spent most of my earlier time as a Quaker going to Quaker meetings. And when we moved to California, um, it was just the location of the Quaker meeting relative to the Unitarian Universalist Church. And I used to say I was a Quaker going to a UU church. But now I say I'm a Unitarian Universalist and uh, I've volunteered in lots of different ways. I like to say I've done everything but sing in the choir. And you know, it's a time where I try to be stepping back more Old white guys have had the center of attention for too long. So most of my efforts are about lifting up other people. So for our listeners who are not Unitarian Universalist, um, I'll just say Charles mentioned Star King. That's a, a seminary, a Unitarian Universalist seminary, one of, I think, only two that are specifically Unitarian Universalist out in California. And then um, can you guys explain just really briefly, what is the co-moderator but like, what do you do for people who don't live in the world of UUism? What even is a co-moderator? Sure, it's different pretty much in every denomination. We're the chairs of the board and we are kind of, I mean, it's really a team. We really work hard to not be the leaders of the board. We really collaborate uh, running the General Assembly of the association, which for Unitarian Universalists, is every year. So we um, coordinate those business meetings and um, and then we, you know, put together the board and a million little things is, uh, I recently retired and my partner says, I don't think of you as retired. I think of you as having an unpaid executive level job. <laughs> we, we are uh, 
officially defined as the chief governance officer of the Unitarian Universal Association, um, which is a mouthful. And uh, and there, yeah, it like makes us. We we are often discovering things that the 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 moderator position, as opposed to the president of the UA, which is an elected position as well, but a salaried position. Um, there's a lot of things within the governance structure of the Unitarian Universal Association that is designed to sort of have way too many checks and balances. So we like balance against the president in a lot of ways, but we choose to collaborate rather than to uh, test one another. So it's I, we have a good relationship with the president. Okay, so aware that both of you spend a lot of time in the world of UUism, sort of working on how to how to change that and make that better and live within our values. The question we're hoping you'll address with us today goes much bigger and broader, right? So our question this morning is, you've got a magic wand and there's one thing that you can fix or change about humanity right now. What is the thing, right? Like what is the most vital thing to shift? And we can, whoever wants to start can start. Charles, go on. <laughs> <laughs> this is what collaboration looks like. <laughs> exactly. So, so sort of a cheating answer would be to somehow correct the mistakes so that humanity can thrive and survive, right? But that involves a whole constellation of things, right? So there's, there's the climate disaster, I refuse to call it climate change. I call it climate disaster. Um, and usually I add the square word in front of that. But um, um, feel free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, there's, you know, policing in America. There's, there's uh, the whole system of systemic prejudice within this country. There are uh, a number of other ecological and uh, disasters that are going on within the world. There's the, 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 the impact of capitalism on how we sort of live our lives. So many things that sort of play into that. So to pick one of those things to work on was not really, I'm not able to set aside the others and say, I'm only going to work on one. So, all right. <laughs> I'm really different window. Um, you know, I've studied improv for the last 10 years and rule number one in improv is that you say yes. And what I wish we could change is people being curious instead of judgmental about one another. And, um, curious and compassionate, you know, and just meeting each other with curiosity. You know, I think about what if what if the settlers had landed in Massachusetts and been really curious about what the people who lived there already knew and could teach them. Like, what if I, I mean, I, I just feel like that is such an essential human trait. Um, and I just, I really wish, I really wish that we could live into it more and not be coming out of so much fear and role and judgment. And, and of course, you know, I mean that in small relational ways and I mean it in things like police violence like what if police well I don't think actually police are designed to be curious but you know I, I just feel like um, just what if we could be interested in each other and, and greet each other with compassion and curiosity at all levels I, I wonder you both mentioned police violence so I'm going to just tug on this 
thread, Maggie, what would it look like if we were to retrain or reimagine policing with the idea of curiosity and compassion? I wonder, do you think that, I don't know, what do you think that would look like? I don't think it would look like policing. I think it would look like um, community. I think it would look like accountability within community. But here in Minneapolis, there's amazing organizing going on for alternatives to police. You know, the alternatives are about relationships and helping people with what they need and um, supporting people who are vulnerable and stopping people who, who need to be stopped, but not you know, not with more violence. I, I'm I'm moved by I have friends here who are involved in this and, and it's a whole community effort. You know, we I think tried to move too fast here and got a lot of backlash about it. And and here, as so many places, crime is through the roof. And then people get scared and say, see, we need more police without actually looking if well that didn't work though, did it? So I think it just wouldn't look like policing. Police are doing what they were designed to do. Right. Yeah. So just to acknowledge that we're we're recording, you know, not that long after the footage of the Tyree Nichols murder has been released, right? Um, and I will say, Meg, I was having a conversation with my partner earlier this week, and we were talking about this very question. And he was like, police are designed to get compliance. And they're taught, they're trained to do whatever it takes to gain compliance, up to and including enacting, you know, horrible violence. And I love the idea that the sort of improv yes and, right, would, if, if in a way, if, people, if police were trained to do yes and instead of trained to just ensure compliance at any cost, right, how different, it, it wouldn't be policing as we recognize it now, of course, right? But so much of what happens in the world would be different. I think you're right. If we could come at the world with curiosity instead of judgment, with yes instead of no, right? Um, you just think about like all the wild oppression and prejudice in the world. If instead of no, you can't be that or no, those people are no good. If it was just yes, yes, all of it, you know, be such a difference. Yeah, like, wait, how many genders are there? Wait, wait. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes, and more. Yeah, it'd be so different. When I started at community church, it there was a lot of conflict and anxiety. And I, I started by saying, this will be a ministry of yes. And I honestly didn't know where I was going with that or what that was going to mean. But it's now four years and people still say it. In fact, they say it when like, oh, you've asked me to be treasurer. Well, Reverend Peggy says we have a ministry of yes. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> thank you. But there's a there's an energy, a way of sort of stepping up and saying, I'm going to try it, right? I'm I'm going to be curious. I'm going to figure out either how to do it or whether I can do it or, uh, you know, I'm going to just be open to the possibility. So I, I, I'm sorry, Kat. The other top rule in improv besides saying yes is that you always want your improv partners to look good. So yeah. everything you're doing is to support them. So you don't, you don't do jokes at their expense. You don't, you don't ever do anything. And, you know, to me, that's part of the yes is like, Yes, and here you are, and here I, you know, like it's, I, I have to say improv, which I've studied now for about 10 years, is probably the best training for leadership I've ever had of any kind. So for me, the the, the piece of this that I think is important is the, the, the willingness to experiment. Um, so 
So there are interesting experiments going on across the country and even here in the Bay Area about different ways of policing or having community response teams that are not police to a variety of different situations. Um, and I mean, this is the this is the statistician in me. You do experiments all the time. The phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, drives me nuts because you don't know if it could be better unless you do an experiment. And so um, we know that we can do better with policing. So we should do the experiments to find better answers. And whether that's improv and say yes and, or some other variation of trying different things, that's what we need to be doing. And in some places it is happening. Well, and that sort of reminds me what you had started with was there isn't just one problem. There are a whole list of problems and I don't know where to start, but the the idea of sort of this question of what is the primary task, maybe the Meg is on to something that the primary task is to take all of those things and approach it with this curiosity. How could this be better? Rather than the complacency of it's fine or it isn't fine, but you know, it is the best that we've got. So we're just gonna keep on going the way we're going, even though we have this climate catastrophe, even though we're facing massive violence, even though so many horrible things are happening, but you know, whatever. <laughs> So the lens of curiosity and compassion becomes our first step into all of everything that's going on. Have you ever, have you ever seen someone adopt that lens, Meg? Like, has there ever been a moment when you've like sort of watched someone come to understand that that approach is better than the approach they've been taking and, and sort of like had an aha moment? Well, so I take improv. I started when I was 55 with people who are 55. So I'm 67 now, but much older. And every week in check-ins, we'd talk about how improv was changing our lives. And and it was changing everyone's. And one of my jokes was, if you want to do a singles group, uh, for people who want to be in a relationship, they should take improv because people who had been too afraid to go out on dates or to check out whatever was next were like, well, you know, why not? I'll just give it a try. And so it was very funny to see all, especially these older women in the group suddenly like being willing to try something. And that's a very small thing. But I think... Um, you know, watching young organizers, which is, I have a 26-year-old who's done a whole lot of different kinds of organizing, and seeing the way that they think, which is so different. I still remember, you know, when Tamar Clark was killed here in 2015, murdered by police, and my kid then was 17 and said, um, Mom, how many highways have you shut down? And I was like, geez, I've never shut down. I've done a lot of things. <laughs> Shut down some other things, but I've never shut down a highway. You know, and it was it was like, well, how fun. That's what you're gonna go do, you know. And and so I feel like the organizers, you know, looking for ways to to disrupt business as usual, were coming up with really creative ideas that weren't, you know, it was like, let's go to the Mall of America on the biggest shopping day, you know, let's like it just felt like um creativity and i really love it when activism feels like creativity because i do feel like so much of it feels like well let's go march on the capitol again which i'm not saying we don't need to do it but it's really creative it's not 1963 anymore it's not the most in washington and I, i've 
I've been so many of those things by now where we just say, no, we're not going to put up with it. It's like, really? Because it seems like we are actually. And I, I just feel like I'm so much more interested in the yes than the no. It's interesting. I was, uh, I've gotten arrested, I think last year in front of the White House. And I have to say it almost felt boring. It felt like, yeah, this is what we do, right? We all come out, all the same people from all over the country who I somehow now know because we all keep showing up in the same place to say we're not going to put up with it anymore, right? And we're and and even to get arrested in a way that feels pro forma. I mean, it's just yeah, I have that feeling of like how do we break through, right? We see the crisis coming. How do we push past it? So Charles. I promise this connects Peggy, <laughs> but like you started from the place of there's so many things, right? And you both sort of spoke to the fact that you're doing what amounts to maybe a full-time job for no paycheck. How do you, why do you keep, what keeps you doing it? Like when you say, Meg, it's, we say we're not going to put up with it, but the same stuff keeps happening. How do you not let yourselves get defeated by the vast array of things? How do you not get defeated by the sort of drudgery of the work that you have to do in the world, um, what keeps you driven on these, passionate, you know? So, you know, there are always moments where you you have your low moments, but, the, but there are other things that, uh, that lift you up. So there is change that happens. And I, I just, would, I just wanted to add one thing about the pro forma activity of getting arrested. I think for many people, that's a step, right? So they have to go through doing what the, their predecessors did to establish themselves as having the credentials to do the next thing. So um, so I, I, I acknowledge the people who do that because I think it's important as part of their process. But I mean, for me, there's lots of things, right? So I guess innately, the innate thing that I'm most concerned about is that the world should be fair. And the world is not fair because of a whole bunch of things that we do and a whole bunch of things that the universe does to us. And so until things are fair, I don't feel like I can rest. Um, so I have tons of privilege. So things are easier for me than they are for others. And that's not right. And so, and so that drives me all the time because um, I can empathize with the people who aren't in my place and say, why don't they have the same thing that I have? So how do we how do we make that how do we make that more fair? And so that's I'm driven by that, and I'm lifted up by the relationships I have. I love working with Meg. I love the board that I work with. I love the people in my life. I'm a grandparent. I have a grandchild who's three, who is everything. Her mom is pregnant with twins. We're about to have more grandchildren. I knew we'd hear about the twins. <laughs> <laughs> so. You know, it's it's what is the world that we're we're leaving behind for them? The people of my generation effed up this world so much that there is so much correction to be done. There's so much responsibility for it. And my ancestors go back to the 1650s. So I am related to all the old white people who did all kinds of disastrous stuff. I have a family tree full of uh, just things that make me say, oh, well, I owe the world this because of them. And I owe the world this. Because of them. So I'm motivated by all of those things. Well, it's like living a life of accountability for 
your ancestors. Like Charles said, it really is the relationships that keep me going. You know, I just think about the people I love who are vulnerable and um, where does love lead me to say yes, you know, with them and for them. And um, over and over things, I'm, I'm a scaredy cat, you know, I, I don't like physical discomfort. I don't like conflict, you know, like I'm a scaredy cat, but over and over it's loving people who are at so much more risk than I am. That makes me say, get out of your bunker, kiddo. You don't, you don't get to do that. I've had a life of just knowing such amazing people who do such amazing things. And, um, and, and those are, you know, the curious, compassionate ones. Those are my people. <laughs> so I wonder um, what you would want to say to other people. You know, so this is, you sort of named the task, you've named the problem. What is it that people should be thinking about now? I think we're all experiencing tremendous um, transition going on in the world. You know, life kind of feels uncomfortable and and there's conflict and there's sort of a disintegration of institutions. What would you say then to people who are looking for what am I supposed to do? Like, how do I how do I take what you're saying into the world, or into my next step? You know, I think everybody's in a different place, but. So I would never think there's a one size fits all answer for that, but. Um, for me, what helps always is to learn from the margins. Like I've I've been learning a lot and I have so much more to learn from the people who have written and, and thought a lot about disability justice. And um, so, you know, we're trained to look towards the privileged, look up, look at, oh, I'm not as rich as they are. Oh, I'm not as thin as that. You know, like all, all the comparison goes, well, what I've found is that, um, Strength and love and joy comes from looking in the other direction. And so wherever you are, people, you know, wherever people are, who can they align themselves with and learn from and be with? And and what leadership, effective leadership is a relational thing. And so who do you want to be in relationship with? Who are your people? But I guess I'd say find your people. Charles, what would you want to? Well, I was thinking, and uh, uh, now unfortunately I'm blanking on the name. The uh, Brian Stevenson, yes, his phrase was "get proximate," right? The, of the thing to do, get proximate. And so, I guess that's what I would say if I were going to say one thing, it would be get proximate. So, it's the approach that Meg described. You know, where where are you looking? Who are you associating with? Who are you in relationship? So, get proximate to those things that make you uncomfortable too, right? So that's how you learn. Um, just like Meg said, getting out of the bunker, uh, you know. For those of us with a lot of privilege, um, think about where your social capital is and how you can use it. You know, one of the reasons that I I never, I didn't spend my life thinking someday I'd be co-moderator of the UUA. I, honestly, not at all. Um, but uh, uh, Marta Valentina, uh, Latina, led a closing worship at our General Assembly and invited all the uh, Black Indigenous people of color onto the stage uh, to be with her who were in leadership. And when I looked at all that leadership, I thought, oh, we could we could really turn something if we don't screw it up. And 
how can I use the social capital of an old white woman who's been in this movement for so long and knows so many people from so many different next to the woods? How can I use that to support this leadership? And um, because, you know, there are real challenges going on, not only um, in the United States, but probably in every progressive denomination to the critical race theory, to the anti-racism, to all of the anti-oppression work. And so how can we, who are white in this case, align ourselves to be of support um, of the leaders who are um, will be attacked, are attacked. And Charles and I knew that coming in as who we are, the former co-moderators of the UUA were younger, one was black, they were both gender binary, not uh, transgender. Like um, they both had health, profound health issues, disability. I mean, so people were horrible. I mean, it's not just police who treat people differently. All of us do, let's be real. All of us make assumptions about who we need to treat with respect. And so I knew that even though it would be uncomfortable for Charles and me, it would not be the same level of salt. And so I think that's part of figuring out what to do is how can you use your social capital for your values, for what you care most about, you know, for the kind of change you want. Right. In fact, I had a conversation with Bargreave, who is one of the former co-moderators, um, about how a lot of the things that we're doing are things that were envisioned by Barb and Alondria. Um, and um, and Barb said, yes, and because of the privilege that you have, you are able to do these things when we weren't able to do them, so. Although they did, let's just be real, they did a lot. They did a lot, yeah. Us to be doing what we're doing, yeah. But yeah, privilege goes a long way. And um, I did this rejection therapy, this guy, Jia Jang, he was running this rejection therapy where every day, you, you did things for people to say no to you so you'd get used to it. It was really fundraising and it made me really uncomfortable. So I was trying to get used to people saying no to me. Well, what I realized was, so a lot of the people doing it with him, and so if it's like uh, many of the things involve low-wage workers and all of them said yes to me. So I would say like, can I ride along with you while you deliver pizza? And they'd go, uh, okay, if you want to. Or I'd say, can I go to the back of your store and look around? Uh, okay, if you want to, you know, we just we can bring me a piece of birthday cake. It's not my birthday, but I just would feel good if you did. Okay. And so I just, like, it was embarrassing. And I thought, I might as well talk to people about racism if I want to get rejected because with the privilege I walk around with, and I told him this. I was like, you know, this is this doesn't work for old life. And he was like, oh my God, that's such a different experience that other people are having. You know, imagine, you know, a Chinese immigrant going to your door and saying, Can I play soccer in your yard? I mean, I did it, and someone's like, You want to play soccer? Well, do you want me to play with you? Like, I mean, and it really taught me about how much the world sees me as Mrs. Santa Claus or, you know, some benign person or <laughs> dead because people couldn't see them that way. So anyway, it's it's fascinating what we who have privilege can actually do if we have the nerve to do it and we won't be killed by police for it. Meg, that is fascinating to me. You know, I, 
I never did that intentionally, but I did do something like that. And I won't tell you the story because it's very, very long, but I, you're reminding me of that experience. And wow, what a, I mean, really what a life experiment to knock on someone's door. I mean, and to be able to tell that story and demonstrate how different life is when you're white and when you're white and female, so you seem really kind of gentle <laughs> and, and unintrusive. Oh, you'll just be almost invisible. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, it's really, it's, it's a superpower, actually, that invisibility. I'd love to see old, old white women use that a little better because we, I, we invisible, man, it's, it's a, we got a cloak. <laughs> I had a very good friend who was a nun and she used to write some really radical things. And she said she can, because she was in her system. She was completely invisible. She said, there's nobody in power reading what I'm writing. The people who are reading it are all the women who need to read it. But nuns are some of my best teachers. I mean, I remember <laughs> sister Catherine Pinkerton, she got summoned by the former Pope to come over there because he didn't like what she was doing. And I said, oh, what are you going to do? And she said, oh, I ignored it. I said, you ignored the Pope? She said, hey, what's he going to do? Come and find me. <laughs> yeah, I love that. They've got spunk. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful to both of you for bringing us your wisdom and for sharing. And I wanted to thank you for being here, but I also really want to thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of the whole movement, the denomination and, and the world, bringing your energy, using your privilege, being mindful about it and conscientious about it and stepping aside when that's what is called for and holding all of us accountable when that's what's called, what's called for. I am very, very, very grateful to both of you for your service. Well, thank you and thanks for inviting us. Yes, thank you. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. So I appreciate the opportunity. We're usually doing meetings. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you both for saying yes. <laughs>